Take a network break, pass around the virtual donuts and join us for our weekly dash through the latest IT news. Today, we're going to be talking about cyber insurance, Arista as a routing company and VMware financial results plus more. We're sponsored by Unimus. They are a network automation and configuration management solution. It's fast to deploy and easy to use, designed specifically to make it easier for you to adopt network automation. Unimus takes under 15 minutes to deploy and you can get more details at unimus.net slash packet pushers. And a reminder that on September 28th, we're holding a sponsored live stream virtual event with Glueware. We'll be talking about intelligent network automation. Glueware gives you quick automation wins out of the box as well as helps you evolve uh, toward infrastructure as code. We're going to talk to Glueware customers, see some technical demos, have some tech conversations. You can register for that at packetpushers.net slash livestream. And last but not least, after the news, we have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet, where we talk about the integration of SD-WAN and zero trust network access. So if either of those two are on your radar, stick around and check that out. There was one factoid that didn't come out till right to the end, which was that the SD-WAN business for Fortinet, SD-WAN, SASE, whatever you want to call it, is 15% of their total revenue already. So I found that really interesting to think that Fortinet as an organization coming from that history of a background and suddenly SD-WAN is a substantial part of their revenue just made me open to my eyes to how big the SD-WAN market is and particularly for Fortinet. Right. And how much growth I think there still is as well. Mm, very much so. Yeah. All right, we're going to kick off the show with some FU that's follow-up. Uh, we had talked about uh, Cisco TAC using WebEx as a support option. If you were a WebEx customer, you could just jump on a WebEx call with Cisco if you had a support issue. Uh, one of our listeners wrote in to believe uh, about that saying, do you really believe Salesforce would hop on a Teams call for support or Microsoft support on a Google Meet? They all prefer their own tool. What else did you expect? But he does think it's a good move by Cisco and it could make the support experience better overall. Yeah, it, at least instead of using legacy methods to communicate with people. And as I said last week in the note was at least they're using their own tools to some extent and maybe they'd find out how bad they are. Although they all claim that WebEx is awesome and everything is marvellous and it never breaks, except everybody else doesn't quite see it the same way. But my point is also that if you really believed in customer first and they all run around saying this, you know, we listen to the customer, we believe in the customer, we, we want to meet the customer where they want to be, then you would use any tool that your customer would prefer. So if your customers have an internal policy of Microsoft Teams, but the, supply, but the vendor has some other tool that they want to use, Slack or whatever, mm -hmm. why shouldn't they meet you on, their, on your terms? All right. So and in particular, Cisco WebEx is not popular or widely used, right? If you look, go and look up any of the research surveys or do any search on the top 10 collaboration tools, WebEx does not appear in any, like in very few lists. The one I'm looking at right now is one that came out this week. Cisco does not appear in the list at all. Go to meeting, Google Hangouts, House Party, for goodness sakes, <laughs> Slack, Skype, Microsoft Teams, Google Meet, Zoom. Of course, Zoom's got like 20, depending on how you measure it, somewhere between 25 and 50% market share. Right. So why shouldn't they meet you where you are? Well, you know, I, I take your point that they do make a lot of mouth noises about caring about the customer, but if it meant Cisco would have to buy some Teams licenses, I think that's where the customer care would stop. Yeah, well, you know. But also, I respect the fact that if you want to get results for your job and just get home, then and your very, very expensive maintenance contract from your technical assistant says, says bark like a dog, then I guess you bark like a dog. I mean, I guess I will say if you made a Venn diagram of Cisco customers and then customers who have WebEx, there would be enough of an overlap. Of yeah. So yeah. it makes sense. Cisco's Don't disagree. Yeah. yeah. But equally, you know, when vendors 
make mouth noises about <laughs> customer first and we love our customers and we do our best to support our customers. There are limits. And then make a diktat that you have to use this tool to talk to them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Which is a problematic, right? It's not like it's a telephone, which was a universal standard. You know, you could use your own telephone to talk to them. Sure. Really Everybody has telephone yeah. and email, but yeah, these, yeah, these are private Or a web systems. interface. Yeah, right? right. But forcing you to use a call, yeah, so... In any case, we appreciate the follow-up. If you want to hit us up with questions, comments, corrections, just go to packetpushers.net slash FU. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, let's jump into some news. As ransomware attacks increase, insurance companies are having to rethink their approach to cyber insurance. Uh, the website CyberScoop says ransomware now accounts for 75% of all cyber insurance claims. Uh, meanwhile, the insurance giant AIG says its own premiums are up 40% over the last year, and the insurer is tightening its coverage terms around cyber insurance. So to understand cyber insurance and what it does for you, you really need to understand the insurance industry. So I'm going to sort of cover some basics here. I had the fortune to work uh, for uh, an extended period inside of the insurance industry, and particularly I was working alongside a group of actuaries. Now, actuaries is a group of mathematicians who study data and analysis and statistics, and typically takes eight to 10 years to be a certified as a actuarial scientist, or there's some words like that around the industry, right? Mm -hmm. These people mm -hmm. are top professionals. And what they do is they assemble masses of data on a given topic. So you go out and say, I want to insure cyber insurance risks. So what you do is you go out there and you go and do field research to enormous death, carrying data. And what you're trying to do is build metrics of how often does a given event happen? And when it does, how much does it cost to rectify it? Because once you know that, you then know through the statistical analysis, how much money you need to have. So you need to have a pool of money to pay out damages from claims. And that pool of money then determines how much you need to charge customers. Right. And then, of course, very importantly, the insurer wants to make a profit. <laughs> yes. So if you're going to have a cyber insurance pool, you're going to want to write a group of policies that make like 500 million, which means you have to have 500 million to charge customers. And you, then you need to write an insurance policy which has terms and conditions and you say you will pay out in these circumstances but you won't pay out in these circumstances you might quite often insurance policies are written say if you have a car accident we will cover you for the accident and in the early days of car insurance policies they didn't specify what they didn't cover but now they do mm -hmm. right? so mm -hmm. people can't come along and say i'm claiming for the flat tire that was on my car except the flat tire was flat before the accident because it was sitting on the side of the road right, right. somebody drove right. into it right so there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on here, policies, what they pay for, what they don't pay for. And with cyber insurance, of course, it's actually for business. And that's a fundamentally different insurance game because companies buy insurance policies for different reasons to why you buy home insurance policy, right? If you're an executive, an IT executive, and you buy corporate business, you can buy revenue protection, you can buy uh, insurance policies against accidental death of CEOs or critical staff members and things like that. And the whole point of these insurance policies is to offset risk or to point risk away, like to make it not my problem. Right. But the challenge with cyber insurance policies is that IT security is very hard, very complex, very unpredictable, and often inexplainable. You cannot expl explain why and what something is, and you cannot go in and say, well, if you implement these features, you will be safe, right? You will meet a minimum level of compliance, right? Exactly. I was thinking about uh, cyber insurance in relation to the PCI standards, which says you must do these X number of things to be, mm. you know, PCI compliant. There's nothing similar to that in the insurance industry. And even if there was, 
the compliance doesn't always mean safe, secure, protected. Uh, yeah, the, no. the cybersecurity is so massively complex. There are so many moving pieces. Uh, there's technical issues, there's human issues, social engineering, that it makes this problem really, really hard to solve. And I don't know how much <laughs> actuarial, actuarial data there is yet, uh, but clearly they didn't see ransomware coming. No, well, historically, the ransomware hasn't been a thing. You know, it's not, it's happened a few times and a few companies went down and obviously the, the game has shifted. So if you're buying a cyber insurance policy now and up until now, data breaches and ransomware, the insurance company would actually come in and rectify. So they would bring in a team of IT professionals as part of the policy, depending on the policy that you bought, of course, mm -hmm. and they would come in and conduct the rectifying actions. They would have experts who know how to recover the data or find decryptors or negotiate for ransoms and all that type of stuff, okay? But the problem there is that there's not a lot of data on what you need and what professionals you have. And do you want to have them on standby? You know, like who do you contract for that? Mm -hmm. And it's been a, a pretty tough one. So if you're a, an insurance executive and you're looking at your pool of money and the claims going out of it, You've got a couple of choices here. You either have to pay out less in claims by tightening up your conditions, reducing mm -hmm. coverage, mm -hmm. or you charge more for your insurance policy so that the pool, the pool of money that's there to potentially paid out is topped up with more cash, or you lose profit margins. Insurance companies never had lose. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let me assure you of that. It's like gambling casinos. A casino never loses. Yes. Um, Insurance companies are the same sort of business. So, and increasingly what cyber insurance policies are doing is shifting responsibilities back on the policy holders to prevent a breach. So that's saying you have to meet certain compliance. Now that's pretty normal in insurance. Like if you're driving a car, you have to have a license to drive the car. And that would indicate that you have a certain level of basic proficiency and you've passed a valid certification to say that you are permitted to drive a car, right? Right. So... The challenge here is that in the cyber insurance policy, I think what we're going to see over time is you must have these minimum things in place. You must have logging. You must have this forensics. You're going to have, and I think in two ways, this is actually bad and good at the same time. And, you know, I sort of look at broad industry trends as whether they lift the ceiling or lift the floor. Mm -hmm. And this is one of these things that lifts the floor but lowers the ceiling at the same time. <laughs> because if, if the cyber insurance policy, it's a bit like, PCI. PCI forces you to do things that actually don't make sense. They're not particularly good um, for organizations who are really advanced from security implementation and monitoring. Doing PCI compliance is a negative. So it lowers the ceiling. The same would apply here. If your cyber insurance policy says you must have an application firewall and it must meet these criteria effectively, you know, making it one of the brands, and you choose to have a different type of policy, then you have to go and put a branded firewall in front of your thing, right? right. That's a negative. And that's quite common in insurance policies. So on the other hand, it does lift the floor. So it raises a base level of compliance of minimum competency up. So ransomware gets a little harder. And ransomware is a chase the zombie thing, right? And usually the companies that are being impacted is not the smartest and the best companies. It's the companies with the least competent or the least effort expended by executives. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Does insurance improve the cybersecurity industry, teach it to grow up, stop acting like a bunch of high school kids, you know, um, playing with, with computers and act more mature and responsible and take reasonable decisions and talk about risk in an adult way? Or um, does it actually come down and go like, now children, do, 
<laughs> this is what you have to do so that because daddy's going to look after you. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. I think, um, you know, based on PCI and what I know about it, I think uh, it's not going to have any meaningful uh, effect other than making money for assessors or auditors to come in and check the boxes. It's not actually going to change anybody's risk posture. Um, security is often about behavior and behavior is very hard to change. Uh, I think what's going to happen is one, organizations who are in the cyber insurance market are going to have to expect higher premiums and more restrictive policies and having to bring in lawyers when it's time if, if they need a payout. And two, mm. I think companies are going to weigh the cost of paying a ransom against how much they would pay for an insurance policy, decide which one is cheaper and just go with that and not worry about security. Yeah. And problem managed, right? Not my responsibility, no risk, all that sort of stuff. So my um, and my point was, I think, you know, if ransomware gangs can price the market right, you know, if they can yep. figure out, you know, where the gap is between how much an insurance company is going to charge you for an insurance premium and how much they're going to charge you for the ransom, if they can figure that out, they'll still be in business if they can make it well, cheaper than your, your insurance policy. That's the policy. adversarial side of it as well. Yes. So, you know, there is any number. And then, of course, it cyber insurance in the initial phase may actually see the price of cyber security go up because you want to spend on cyber security. But it may also cap the amount of products in there because it says if you have, if you spend too much on cybersecurity and get no results, you know, it, it, there there's various industries here that need to come up. And I think the other side of this is that the insurance industry is able to influence politics because they have data. So they mm -hmm. can go up to the government and say, look, our insurance policies are here. This is how many breaches there were from our, you know, from because if you're claiming on your insurance policy, you've got data on what actually happened. And if you can go to the government and say, we need increased legal coverage in order to continue to sustain industry, then that could drive actually a, a serious response from government as well. Could be, yeah. I also think there's a huge market opportunity here for disaster recovery services. Uh, I, my pitch would be if I was selling these kind of things, you're never going to secure all your assets. Invest in good backup and restore instead um, and, and you know just let security go where it goes. For me, it would be very useful to see if that does happen. So if it forces customers to implement a backup, you know, an offsite so that it can't be attacked by a ransomware crew so that they can recover, that's mm -hmm. a great thing because a lot of companies aren't implementing that now. Um, and if it becomes a requirement of the, of the cyber insurance policy and if you don't have one, you can't claim, well, then that changes the nature of, of, the, of the posture. Yeah. yeah. All right. My takeaway is uh, cyber insurance is going to get more expensive. And if, if you were just thinking of it as, you know, sort of the easy button to uh, an actual complex security policy and security operations, that's not going to be the case anymore. Mm -hmm. All right. Moving on. Uh, Motherboard's reporting on how some U.S. ISPs are sharing NetFlow records with third party security companies like Team Kaimru and Palo Alto Networks in exchange for threat intelligence. And the article is warning uh, that customers of security companies are getting access to those flow records, perhaps due to things like track server to server communications across a supposedly private VPN connection. And I think the idea here is they're saying that this seems like sort of a, a shady relationship between the security companies and the ISPs. Yeah, so this is one of these issues where you originally read the article and you think this is right on the edge of a beat up, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's like a reporter's found something and gone like, I can make a big beat up out of this. But I also felt that there's actually some, there's some truth, there's, and like most beat ups, there's an aspect of truth. And that is, uh, if you are running a threat intelligence company, you need to get your source data to evaluate what's actually a threat. And we've seen so many companies go out there and buy DNS providers to get DNS lookup data. 
and then being able to buy NetFlow data from various telcos around the world or to get or fetch or, you know, come up with some sort of way to fetch that data gives you an immense amount of information on which to analyze and look for threats, right? And that feels like you actually want that. It does. I, my issue with this article is the headline, which says how data brokers sell access to the Internet backbone, which is very alarming. Uh, but mm. threat intelligence companies are not data brokers. Those are entirely no different way. animals. Uh, and, and selling access, what, what they're, I mean, they make it sound like ISPs are selling flow records. They're not. They're giving them to these threat intelligence companies in exchange for threat data. And then in yeah. turn, the threat intelligence companies are saying to their customers, hey, we've got some flow records that may be relevant to an investigation you're conducting. And most enterprises now have networking systems that reach into their networks and have a complete list of assets that you have. It's called a subscription license manager, right? Right. So your vendor now knows how many devices are in your network, how many ports are active, how long they've been there, what code they're running. Is that the same thing? Is your vendor selling that data to somebody else? Would you know? Is it part of the contract? Um, If you send NetFlow data off to a cloud management console of some sort, maybe a Uh, There's plenty of companies out there who take NetFlow data and you stream it into them. Um, It would be maybe significant to start asking them, what are they doing with that data? So if you have a off-prem analytics provider, ask them if they're selling that data onto somebody else, because they would be under a a lot of pressure right now. Right. There's a lot of ad companies, dynamic ad companies, looking for data signals to be able to target ads to people. And keep in mind that in in the case of a telco, the telco doesn't, only know what traffic is happening in the hole, they actually can know which IP address you're on and link your name, address, and various other records to it if they were to sell that whole package. Right. And we know that in the US, particularly companies like T-Mobile and Verizon are definitely doing that, and AT&T actually. Yeah, that's the point. There's lots of uh, shady and reprehensible things that ISPs are doing with individual user data. This, to me, doesn't necessarily sound like one of them. I think the article or the author of the article thought maybe this was a case sort of like the Israeli spyware Mm. issue with NSO Group where, you know, shady customers of this company could be doing bad things with the data as opposed, but they don't prove it in this article. So, (laughs) yeah, I feel like it's they've gotten out over their skis a little bit on this. Yeah. And it has to be said that most IT security companies have broadly acted well. The industry, the cybersecurity community tends to be self-regulating in a lot of ways and reputations are important. And if you or the word got out that your organization was receiving NetFlow information and then selling it to a data broker, I suspect that you would not last very long. That would be a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And But they didn't prove that was happening. That they're, they, No. No. So, so yeah. I did reach out to to some people I know about this, and that's basically what they said. They said they've been under a great deal of pressure to sell this data uh, from investors mm-hmm, right? and, mm-hmm. and have so far been able to push back. So I think the, there is an angle here where if there is no actual reaction to this story, they will be under greater pressure to release that data or mm-hmm. to sell that data to make greater profits and greater revenues. But up until now, the most companies know that if they started selling you know, data based on flows from the network and correlating to data brokers to target people more uniquely, then probably that would become a problem. That would absolutely be a problem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that Motherboard has proved that case here. I feel like they have not. They've got a lot of suppositions from unnamed sources and stuff. So I think, yeah, this this article is 
raising the idea of a potential problem, but they haven't demonstrated that it's an actual problem and happening. So yeah, if, if anybody there knows- a, There is a concern here that if you engage with one of these suppliers and you're sending them NetFlow records of your um, you know, IT vendor says, we want to put this on site so we can get data to manage our cloud console, you want to have privacy yes. um, clauses in your supply contracts to make sure that they are not on selling that data. Uh, because personal privacy and corporate privacy are the same thing. Now, I know that a lot of companies are out there using surveillance data, like they buy from data brokers so they can target to find customers for sales and marketing campaigns. So it is hypocritical to turn around at one side and say one half of the organization is out there absolutely using data surveillance and personal surveillance to check customers. But don't do it to me. (laughs) Hypocrisy (laughs) is real. But, you know... I, I think you you absolutely want to do that at this point to make sure that vendors receive the signal that they're not allowed to set, take your data and then sell that on to somebody else without your express right. permission. Just, just yeah. because I'm giving you access to this data for some kind of threat hunting or investigative purpose doesn't mean you get to then turn it around and sell it off to a third yeah. party. Or just absolutely. for software subscription licensing or you're running my cloud management console. Right. You know, if you've got a network visibility console or your SD-WAN, even your SD-WAN platform, cloud managed SD-WAN platform has all that this data. That's true. Lots of data about your applications and connections. Do so you want to make sure you actually want to write a caveat on your purchase orders to say, no, none of our data can be on sold, can be used for commercial purposes or something like that? Yeah. In any case, a link in the show notes to the, to the story from Motherboard if you want to check it out for yourself. And if you've got any insight, you can always hit us up, packofpushers.net slash FU. A uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Unimus. They're a network automation and configuration management software designed for ease of use and fast deployment network-wide. You shouldn't have to become a developer just to automate your network. That's what the makers of Unimus designed the platform to remove barriers of entry to automation. There's no programming languages, no abstraction frameworks, no templating. With Unimus, you just can use the configuration skills you already have network-wide without spending weeks learning a complex framework that focuses on rapid automation. They also handle network config management from config backup, change management, change notification, and config auditing. It's a full-featured configuration management system in addition to automation. It runs on-premises, it's multi-tenant ready, and supports more than 180 network device types across 100-plus vendors. And you can get a free, no-obligation, unlimited license trial or schedule a short technical demo. Find out how at unimus.net slash packetpushers. That's unimus.net slash packetpushers. All right, back to the news. Arista is ramping up its efforts to sell its hardware and software as routing platforms for the cloud and service provider edge. The company's best known for data center switching. It also wants to be a player in cloud and service provider routing. Uh, they say they're entering their phase three of their routing solutions. It's based on their R-series platform running Jericho Silicon from Broadcom. And they're positioning it for routing use cases for multi-cloud edge, metro edge, and the 5G RAN edge. <laughs> phase three. I bet when they started out, they didn't have phase three planned out. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but in hindsight, we're now in the third phase. Yes. No, I'm just joking. I think the interesting part about this is that Arista is sort of acknowledging publicly that a lot of its revenue comes from cloud companies. Up until now, we've seen Arista sort of not talk about its, its um, well-established and somewhat dominant position supplying to the big companies like Microsoft is a publicly known one and others, obviously, because 30% of their revenue comes from cloud scale market. Uh-huh. Um, and this seems to be an admission that the cloud scale market wants something different to everybody else. And to me, this sounds like they're taking EOS. Now you you got the briefing here, so I'm going to throw this at you and say, feels to me like they're taking EOS, forking it and removing the stuff that, that the enterprise use or that most people use 
and just making a version of EOS, which is just for cloud scale operations? Uh, I think they would cringe at the word fork. Uh, they say it's native EOS uh, and running their own internally developed routing stack. Mm -hmm. uh, but EOS is a modular OS, so they can turn on and off features that, you know, a customer doesn't want or need. So that's not technically a fork, but I think that's the idea. Yes, it's an EOS. It's EOS that you can customize using their routing stack for your cloud and service provider edge routing cases. Yeah. Yeah. And lots of good stuff in there, right? So they're talking about EVPN for ELAN, ELAN and eTree, EVPN MPLS gateway segment routing with TE. So all the things that you would expect there. Right. But I think the end, it's not so much, and they talk about new capabilities. I'm actually not seeing too much that looks new. Cloud principles are being embraced for traditional routing. <laughs> uh, customer success in routing. So, you know, EOS, uh, Arista's been positioning their 7,000 series chassis and equipment and their one use switches as routers for a very long period of time. I think I made jokes about it before about, you know, switch router, router switch, does it matter? I right. don't care. Right. Um, and I think really what they're doing here is packaging up an existing version of their product, which exists, and saying this is cloud, this is multi-cloud edge, metro edge, 3G RAN edge, it's routing, it's got special magic routing features that we always had, but now they're just cloud ones. That's exactly right. They're not releasing new specific hardware for this. It's running on their R-series uh, boxes, which they've had for years. Um, it's using, as I mentioned, the Jericho and Jericho 2 uh, silicon from Broadcom. Um, you know, can store a million routes uh, on the silicon. So that's why they're touting it for routing. But it's not, yeah, it's more of, I think, a rebranding or a re-emphasis on the fact that, hey, Arista can also play in the routing space. Uh, in the briefing they mentioned, you know, they're aiming to go up against Cisco 9Ks and Juniper MXs uh, in customer competitions. Uh, I think, you know, they're, what they're really competing against is the white box market. If you're talking cloud and service provider, they're looking for, you know, inexpensive, easy to manage, low cost options. So I think Arista's real competition is probably going to be Sonic running white box. Uh, um, and Juniper would say, I mean, Arista would say, well, you know, EOS is nice and stable and we give you support that you won't necessarily get from Sonic. So that's sort of their competitive differentiator. Yeah, I could definitely go with that. Um, the idea that the cloud scale market is unique is the usual comment. You know, I, may, I poke fun at the fact that everybody uses the same switches and the same modules and the same cables and the right. same packets to do exactly the same thing. But everybody's unique, right? Right. This has a touch of... But cloud networks are unique. And I'm like, eh, okay, uh, not so much, but okay. Um, and what I also feel is that this is probably a recognition of the fact that uh, in particular with CloudScale, they say, we want a, a version of your software that has nothing in it but the things that we want. Mm -hmm. So you, 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 we've seen plenty of presentations where the certain cloud players say, we wrote our own operating system, so we didn't have to have all that legacy stuff. We right. just want in it what we want in it. Yes. And I agree with you, what you said about EOS being modular, up to front. They don't add anything. They test the heck out of it. Certainly all the evidence points to those facts being true. But this doesn't. This just feels like a packaging to say, this is a box that's fit for use at the Cloud Edge Metro and 5G particularly. So we have now got a 5G product portfolio to sell to 5G customers. Right. Yeah, I think this is less a product announcement and more Arista sort of putting uh, putting its foot forward saying, we're in the routing game too, and we're, we're going after the cloud and service provider market with our platform positioned as a router. So watch out, yeah. Cisco and Juniper. So lots of good stuff uh, in it, by, by the way. You know, like they're talking about scale out, but scale outs via L3 leaf spine. Mm -hmm. you know, that's been around for a while. Merchant Silicon, 
Arista has always been using Merchant Silicon. Closed loop automation, standard software defined for orchestration and telemetry. That's what Arista has always been done. So, yeah, this is why I'm not seeing anything that's like, wow, there's something cool. It just feels like a... I, I agree. It's not uh, wham, bam, wild and new, but to me, it's just interesting to see Arista, you know, now openly competing, uh, sort of publicly competing uh, with the Cisco's and Junipers on the routing front as opposed to just data yeah, center on switching. That, on that, at that scaled edge where, yes. you, where a chassis is the thing that you want. Right. I think also, too, we should take into account IP optical this idea that you can now put a DWDM module directly into the edge device and drive a 100 gig, 400 gig, you know, multi-channel DWDM optical interface. You don't need the edge DWDM devices anymore. This might be the announcement. You will start to see new line cards coming out with IP optical interfaces in the near future. This is the first step down that path. Yeah. I asked them if they're anticipating, you know, trying to sell lots of cloud vision licenses. Cloud vision is their, you know, management and monitoring software for EOS. And they said, you know, for the tier ones, probably not. Uh, so they're doing things like supporting open config, NetConf, YAML, and gRPC so that they can tie into whatever tooling uh, the cloud and service providers already have. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll link in the show note if you want to read the press release about it or to dig into more details, we'll move on. Uh, the website Nikkei Asia is reporting that semiconductor giant TSMC is going to raise prices on chips as much as 20% uh, with rising demand and planned investments by the company to expand production capability. I guess the chip maker feels confident it can start passing on some of those costs to customers. Shocked, I tell you, shocked. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you should see my face. It's like horror. No, <laughs> joking. No one should be surprised. But however, there is multiple dimensions here. Uh, TSMC certainly has a competitive advantage and they it's not unreasonable for them to consider charging more for products on the basis of the fact that they have a dominant market position, they own a lot of the capacity and maybe that's what they're doing. But, and, you know, to make various, you know, un, un, uh, salacious remarks to at their expense about grabbing profits while they're going is good. But there's also the fact that TSMC needs to spend tens of billions of dollars or currencies, many tens, to upgrade its manufacturing to keep up with demand. Right. And it has to do it now and not get the factories online for two, four, six, eight years. Right. So it is under serious pressure to fund that. And one way would be to go and tap shareholders for or to go into the bond market and make a request for, you know, issue paper, the corporate paper and get loans. Another way is to just charge your customers more. Mm-hmm. Right. And right now they're in a position to be able to charge customers more. Now, I think also TSMC is under a lot of political pressure. TSMC, of course, is a Taiwanese company. Taiwan relies on U.S. for military protection and support. There's there's geopolitics here. And the U.S. strategically wants to see more fabs um, in the U.S. as a strategic issue, as a military industrial type issue, as does Europe. And... There's political pressure on TSMC to start building fabs in expensive locations, literally. So where before they would put them in the Philippines or in China or in Indonesia or somewhere like that, they're now having to consider putting plants into places like the US and Europe where they'll cost two, three times as much because right. of the labor in the land. Um, and they are also running short on natural resources in Taiwan. Fabs use substantial amounts of water and so forth. and um, for washing and, and so forth. And even though, as we talked about in a previous show, they do recycle a lot and they clean and, and reuse a lot, they still need substantial quantities. So Taiwan may not be the right place to build them. And if they're under political pressure, so 
it's not as immediately obvious as, as you might think. Yeah, there's definitely more to it here than just let's grab the money while we can. Um, as you mentioned, there are infrastructure costs for their build out and geopolitical issues <laughs> that are going to make it a very interesting space. I think the big takeaway, yeah. though, is you can expect uh, we'll have to see whether, you know, uh, OEMs and manufacturers uh, on the vendor side just absorb those costs or also pass them on to customers. Yeah, no, they'll pass on the costs. Oh, for sure. They can't. The, the the IT vendors are never going to take that hit on their bottom line. Their shareholders are saying, you're not allowed to stiff me. And you stiff the customers before you stiff the shareholder. <laughs> More about that customer care discussion. Yeah, customer care. Yeah, we, we love our customers, but not as much as we <laughs> and love And we love their money. <laughs> All right, our last story for the day, uh, VMware reported its second quarter of fiscal year 2022 financial results. The company had revenues of $3.14 billion, up 9% year over year, and net income of $411 million. The company's touting big growth in its SaaS and subscription revenue, up 23% year over year, totaling $776 million in revenue. So VMware beat their predictions. They said we would earn this much. They beat it by, you know, a bit all around. But analyst expectations have been much higher. So the analysts had actually expected VMware to be uh, produce much greater revenue growth, much greater profit growth, and the, sh- the stock price was likely elevated because there's many more analysts who are bullish. Funny how the tech, the financial industry doesn't say highly priced; they just say bullish. They've always got to come up with these hero <laughs> words, like you know, <laughs> ego words, not hero words. Um, and so the fact that VMware shares fell two percent. And directly after the announcement sort of reflects the fact that VMware is in a pool of inflated expectations. It's not that they failed to do anything. We are definitely exiting the Pat Gelsinger era. It's very interesting to see the new CEO talk differently. It uses the same words, the same things. It's, honestly, I, when I'm reading the analyst calls, can't tell the difference between the two. Uh, but the interesting part that I took away is a couple of things here. Um, Raghur Raghuram said, what we mean is that customers are now looking at their IT application assets and deciding which cloud, or whether it's private or public cloud, the individual applications to live on based upon a number of factors, technical factors being a big consideration, business factors, cost, the desire not to get locked into any particular cloud and having sovereignty over where they put their applications and data. So what we are seeing as a result of the evolution from our customers, partly propelled by the endemic, but also partly propelled by customers, which with the cloud is customers are becoming multi-cloud. So he's promoting the vision that customers are choosing to be any cloud. He calls it multi-cloud. I call it any cloud. So they are not wanting to be locked into AWS's mainframe or the Azure mainframe or the Google mainframe idea. They're much more looking to be able to choose the best of each portfolio. And I don't think it's a choice. I think it's a forced choice in that most companies end up with something here because somebody developed something for them and something over here because somebody developed something. And the reality is that VMware can overlay over the top of all of these. So whether you're using VMware on AWS, uh, they talked a lot about Tanzu for Mm -hmm. their hybrid cloud, the fact that they can use containers and do them on-prem, off-prem on VMware on AWS or on AWS on Google or, you know, VMware on Azure or whatever. This idea that they can give you an infinite amount of ways to, you know, put the foot gun in your hands is, is the thing, the vision that they're promoting. I think the vision they're promoting is don't get locked into a public cloud, get locked into VMware and we'll let you go to whatever public cloud you like. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. The old razzle dazzle. Dish. Here's the right hand. Here's the right. Don't look at the left hand. Don't look at the left hand. Oh, look at the right hand. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Given the circumstances VMware is in, given that you know there's a strong move at the moment off-prem uh, and the 
reduction in the VM as kind of the uh, OS platform, the application platform of choice, uh, at least for you know future and new applications. They, they've done a good job in building out a marketing message and potentially a platform to help them survive in a cloud-first world. So I, I, they've got a strategy. They're executing on it. Uh, uh, Raghu Raghuram is carrying forward the vision laid out by Gelsinger. And so far, the market seems to think uh, mm. and customers seem to think that they're telling well, the right did, story. Yeah, he did say in the, in, the, in the analyst call, somebody asked him, where's your innovation coming from? And he basically said, you know, we're a brand, we're incumbent. That's our position. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Who needs innovation I'm, when you're an incumbent? Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, you know, three or 400 <laughs> words, but it's basically like we're already inside most customers and they've got no need to go anywhere else. We're making sure they've got nowhere else to go, you know, it's making sure that they've got no reason to be anywhere else. But with us, you know, brand baby. That's right. You know, La Croix. <laughs> I w- the, the thing that jumped out to me reading the earnings call transcript is how many of the questions, particularly like the first, you know, half a dozen or more were about Hey, we see how, what's going on with SaaS and subscription revenue. What's going on with SaaS and subscription revenue? We saw it grow. Is it going to grow more? Can you grow it more? They're really, really mm-hmm. pushing them on that. Yeah, investors are big on that because they want predictable profits by and large. They don't want organizations whose revenue goes up and down and profits go up and down according to the sales of a quarter. And sitting on a company that's got, you know, you can win now by a company that's sitting on $20 billion of remaining performance obligations, you can value that. Right. But, and the CEO and the the financial guy had to push back a little bit and say, yeah, some of our customers still want term licenses. So we kind of got offered to them. So, you know, back off a little, but the pressure is there. The pressure is there. For sure. Right. That wraps up our news. Uh, Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet, where we talk about the integration of SD-WAN and Zero Trust Network Access. That's coming up right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about the evolution of SD-WAN to encompass Zero Trust Network Access, or ZTNA. Our sponsor is Fortinet, and we're going to dig into how Fortinet's SD-WAN and the Forta client combine to support work from anywhere with Zero Trust. Our 40 guests are Nirav Shah, he is VP of Products, and Alex Samante, Director of Technical Architecture. Nirav and Alex, welcome back to the podcast. So the use cases for SD-WAN around branch connectivity and multi-cloud are clear, and we've talked about them, but how do you see SD-WAN being relevant for this idea of working from anywhere? No, absolutely. Look at if you look at today's uh, work from anywhere or a hybrid workforce, it's clear, right, that users are everywhere, and there are two big priorities they have. They want to be secure as they go out and select applications, and they want a better user experience. This is where we think SD-WAN is very relevant in this idea of working from anywhere. But let's take a step back. Think about SD-WAN evolution. The first generation of SD-WAN was all about, yep, users are at branch. And they are going and making sure that with this WAN path controller, having the better experience. In the second generation, we talked about converging the security and SD-WAN together. And you've seen today's security is the center of every SD-WAN discussion. And yet again, in this third generation, we really think as users are distributed, they have to make sure that the zero trust network access is built in. Because they are accessing application are they supposed to access those applications and not giving them an implicit access is the key point where SD-WAN is getting evolved from just a simple link load balancing to have a full platform with many different use cases. And that's very true, Narav. I would say the 
security aspect from users working from anywhere has really come to light, obviously, in the past year and a half. So we need to make sure that not only are users allowed to get to the applications, but we're constantly checking that every time that they are accessing applications, we're making sure that they still can, rather than the single one-time check that we've been doing in the past. So I think the other thing to notice here is how SD-WAN went from being a WAN technology to being a branch technology, this idea of welding security into the SD-WAN, sometimes it's called SASE, and then how suddenly SASE went on into the next generation, which is this remote perimeter, and how the SD-WAN became a VPN integration and a share, and then it became an access to get where you go to the cloud from anywhere to anywhere. It's very interesting how rapidly that transition has made in terms of product development. And you're a vendor. It just amazes me how quickly this has cycled through. How's that How's that transition been? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because look, if you see SD-WAN as a technology, when we talk to our customers, oftentimes SD-WAN is viewed as a point product. At Fortinet, it's all about the platform and we are building organically rather than acquiring company and stitching them together to make sure that SD-WAN security, even the connection to the branch, all of those components are built in. Hmm. And as more and more customers are deploying that, and especially in today's environment, this whole idea of evolving from VPN to the zero trust network access we thought rather than giving them another product, why don't we just build in the access proxy? So yeah. yet again, rather than customer buying three or four different product, this is built in, no license required for SD-WAN, no license required for access proxy, and they can use all of this to have a simple way to manage those use cases, but at the mm-hmm. same time, get that ROI, which is oftentimes required or marketing very heavily in an SD-WAN discussion. You raise a key point here that I want to I want to light onto because we've done a number of shows or interviews or tech bike podcasts where we've talked to your customers and one of the constant themes we come out about why they like Fortinet SD WAN is that there's it's not multiple different families of product with different licenses and different levels of licenses and it's they don't need to spend months with spreadsheets working out what they have to buy and have to renew that it's just a product that i buy and it's all one product so they get the sd wan the sassy and the SD, you know the remote access it's all just one thing and that's unusual i think in the industry still even today so one of the things that we've seen for both sd wan secure sd wan and now ztna is that the components of that are you know, kind of point products by a single vendor. And, you know, trying to orchestrate them all together can be very difficult with different versions, different features, and, you know, not necessarily a coherent way of making them all, you know, into a seamless product. Now with Fortinet, you know, as Narav said, we've been, you know, bringing these things and putting them together into our products and making them work together. And that's probably the biggest and most important thing about the solution is it really does work together. A number of things are in the FortiGate itself, the Access Proxy, the SD-WAN, but we also Mm -hmm. do marry that with our endpoint, which is, you know, basically for Uh, device access and our enterprise management server, which provides the policy and uh, continuous trust and validation checks. So to make sure that people are able to access everything, making them all work together is really the challenge. So while many customers could have implemented some of these things today, the 
overhead in doing so was so overwhelming. They're just like, I can't, I can't deal with this by integrating them and automating all of these pieces together as a single product. That's where the customer really benefits. Now that's really important. That unification, instead of welding together four or five different products, you know, DNS firewall over here and then a firewall over here and a VPN concentrator and an SD-WAN product here and a threat detection engine here and an app inspection thing. The thing about Fortin is they're just kind of welding it all into one box. And this is where zero trust comes in, right? There's zero trust network access. So Nora, why don't you explain how zero trust is coming to the Fortinet SD-WAN solution set? So the foundation of SD-WAN was really about giving them a better application experience. And in today's most conversations, what our customers say is, hey, as I'm accessing those applications, are my users allowed to do that? And that become a very natural uh, discussion for us of them accessing the application and we giving them the right access, right? What they don't want is, yes, those application steering happening, but my user is accessing every application. So now the ZTNA tie-in to SD-WAN really allows them to do two things simultaneously. Number one, is this the business application that I want to steer on the right path? SD-WAN helps. But at the same time, is this the right user who is supposed to access that application sitting anywhere? And those two make a natural connection to have it together. And now they really like to have them integrated with a single management. So they don't need to worry about two different products, but naturally they're getting the benefit of both accessing yeah, you don't, as well you as You don't experience. want to deploy an SD-WAN and then have to deploy something different for zero trust. Because to me, it's all one of the same thing. The, di- the branch network, remote access user. This is this idea of distributed work is that work happens wherever you are. If you're in the branch, or you're at a coffee shop, whether you're at home, whether you're at grandma's house, it doesn't really matter. It's all just, it's all the same. And so uh, to my mind, the natural fit for ZTNA or zero, zero trust networking, uh, which is kind of like VPN with some stuff added to it, mm-hmm. right? But it should all come into one platform, one administrative console, one, one administration point, one operational point. Right. One thing I would say, you know, the evolution of VPN to ZTNA, the inside that means trusted was not really a failing of VPN, but many people never implemented policies to treat people working remotely more securely. ZTNA does that automatically. That's that's okay. the you know magic of the automation and the orchestration is you don't have to worry about that because as Narav said, the applications that you are looking at and the access you want to give is provided as part of the business logic. And that's the the access you're going to provide to these customers that are working from anywhere. So you don't have to just say, well, they're on VPN, so they're automatically implicitly trusted. Um, Here, they're working from anywhere. They're not automatically implicitly trusted except for the things that are available to that user at that particular time. So can you talk a little bit about your ZTNA architecture? I know Narav earlier mentioned a proxy, so I'm trying to figure out how it all fits together. Sure. So there are four main components for ZTNA. The first one is the device agent, which is the Forta client in our, on our side. So that is what is connecting you to the, um, to the network and making sure that you, you know, have secure access. The next piece is basically the cloud policy and trust check, which happens with our EMS cloud. What it's really doing is making sure you are who you say you are and continually doing that. So not just after the first connect, but after every application access that you're making. And then the cloud policy is really what access do you have? And they make sure that because it's in the cloud, no matter where you're going, it's available for you at the next piece, which is the enforcement point. And that's the uh, application proxy in 40 OS. So you already have 40 OS. 
uh, that has the application proxy to do the enforcement. It understands applications. It understands, obviously, the policy and authentication and the trust check that the EMS cloud is providing. And then from there, you have the optimization, which is SD-WAN. So as Narav said, for customers that already have SD-WAN deployments, really all they're adding is the device agent and the, um, the uh, cloud policy to bring that into ZTNA. And they don't have to change anything about their SD-WAN deployment, and they get the SD, um, sorry, the access proxy along with that. So I'm guessing the policy aspect of ZTNA is actually the critical part and what maybe distinguishes it from a traditional sort of uh, IPsec VPN. Is that right? And if so, how do I make sure, am I having to rebuild my policies from scratch? Can I import policies that I've already got? How does that work? So one of the big differences between ZTNA and VPN is the authentication and access. Many people, you know, from a from a VPN approach, they, you know, they'll authenticate because that that will generally happen with the VPN. But then after that, they usually don't have any policy, you know, outside of that. We can take the existing policy from a, you know, if somebody had a Fortinet VPN deployment and make sure that's there. But usually people want to enhance that with business policy or things that are application level. So the applications that Narav was talking about that customers want to optimize, those are also the applications that they want to secure. So, you know, just because you have access to optimize every different application doesn't mean you really, you know, want to do that for everything that they have. So those policies from a business perspective may not exist in the VPN existing world, and they may be new things you want to build on top of the existing VPN policies. So this is in, in a real sense, you're actually unifying the WAN and the VPN at an operational level. So that is, you say, in the WAN, I want this security level. When I'm in a VPN, I want at least that VPN level, but maybe I want to lift both up. So I talk a lot about lifting the floor, not raising the ceiling. What you want in when it comes to IT security mm -hmm. is raising the floor so that everybody comes up to a minimum level of security rather than trying to improve security just for one piece of the network. Like having amazing security in the data center doesn't actually solve your overall security challenge. And this idea of unifying the policy around your remote access or your distributed work, the zero trust as we call it, it's all the same thing in ways is actually going to lift that floor. So your security posture improves across the board. For ZTNA, one of the biggest kind of aspects for that is segmentation. So, you know, you don't want to just improve uh, security in the data center, as you say, you want to improve it all around. With ZTNA, we retreat that that work from anywhere location as another segment. And we want to keep mm -hmm. it separate and secure when accessing other secure segments. And that could be in your data center, that could be on your corporate LAN, that could be you know, out to the internet, however you want to divide that up. ZTNA really provides a higher level of segmentation than was possible with just VPN alone. So one thing I guess I'm taking away from this conversation is that it sounds like what you're trying to do is if I as a customer have invested in SD-WAN, you can bring ZTNA to that now to sort of extend the value of that investment. Is that is that the idea? That is absolutely the idea because this is really about not buying yet another product and simply enable the use case. As you know, we have done that in 40 US for a number of use cases. And this is something we have been doing it for last two years and great to see customers have started deploying as the part of the SD-WAN journey rather than having it yet another product, different management. And we've been talking about SD-WAN for a long time and it sounds like it's actually a significant now part of your portfolio, is that right? SD-WAN is really, we are very serious at Fortinet, both in terms of innovations and as well as in terms of understanding the use cases as the 
future is evolving. And it's great to see that from four years ago, where we started SD-WAN with almost no revenue, today, if you listen to our last earnings, we talked about almost 15% of our company's revenue brings into SD-WAN business. So that's great. Uh, we are already seeing uh, thousands of customers deploying it. And that goes back to this idea of having an organic innovations to enable the use cases rather than keep building the point products. So hang on, let me just check that for a minute. You're saying that SD-WAN is 15% of the total revenue for Fortinet today. So Fortinet, if, if you think of Fortinet as a company that makes firewalls or security products, SD-WAN is kind of like one-fifth of the company already. So that's not a that's not a little bit of the company. That's not an accessory or a nice-to-have. That's a, you riding the crazy train to, to retirement success, it sounds like. And that's exciting, right? This, as, I, as you said it very well, uh, it's the 15% of the revenue. And this has been done over the last three to four years from almost zero. And it, it's, it, it goes back to that architecture, how we design, how we talked about security and SDN has to be together. But yes, we are known as a firewall company, but at the mm-hmm. same time, we have a significant investment into networking. And SDN plays a huge role. In the other podcast, we talked about SD branch with AP and switches. So we are a big investment into networking and great to see that the business is seeing that as well as yeah, our yeah. customers are adopting it. Yeah, I mean, it's so if I was a customer and I suddenly realized that it was one, you know 15% of the business and growing, I'd be reassured somewhat that SD-WAN was a product that Fortinet was committed to. And, and that's absolutely right. This is where I think the big picture for us is to keep that focus on building the platform. Right, and that strategy of fabric as a platform, and inside that, building these use cases as part of 40OS continues to be a big focus. So, we have talked in the past about secure SD-WAN, SASE, and now we're talking about ZTNA. But as you can see, at the end of the day, it's the same 40OS that customers can deploy anywhere, and that's the flexibility SD-WAN gives you. You want to deploy at branch or at home, or at, even at working from anywhere using the client that Alex talked about or in multi-cloud. It's the same software, same management, an easier way for you to expand for any of your users and get those benefits of ROI, because again, no license required, whether it's SD-WAN or ZTNA mm-hmm. in 4 OS. Well, that does bring us to the end of our time for this podcast. If folks want to find out more about Fortinet, about SD-WAN, about ZTNA, where should they go? So they can go to fortinet.com, where they'll find uh, specific pages on SD-WAN, as well as the Zero Trust Network Access. They both have the great content to learn more. Fantastic. Uh, We'll have links in the show notes for folks to uh, find out all the information they need. Thanks, Alex, and thanks, Narav, for joining us, and thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.